find out what is resonating with you, what speaks to your heart, pulls your heartstrings, what issues are profound, um, what injustice is actually breaking your heart to know that it's going on. Hello and welcome to the Inspired Astrology Podcast. This is Lauren K. Hickman. How are you today? So I'm recording this on the 5th of May, also known as Cinco de Mayo. And I wanted to clarify some of the history of Cinco de Mayo um, because it's been a bit washed out in American culture. Um, I am I'm almost sober for 11 years, so it's been a long time since I went out and had Clamato in <laughs> a Modelo beer can. Um, but I, I just wanted to read from Anti-Racism Daily, which is uh, a, a daily newsletter as well as an Instagram account um, that's definitely worth the follow and definitely worth supporting. So today is Cinco de Mayo, which represents the anniversary of Mexico's victory against the French forces of Napoleon III at the Battle of Puebla on May 5th, 1862. So contrary to popular belief, the date is not Mexican Independence Day, which is celebrated on September 16th. Um, Let's see. So Mexican-American activists in the U.S. uh, during that time celebrated the victory, recognizing the potential ramifications. But the holiday of Cinco de Mayo in the U.S. didn't go mainstream until the 1960s. Chicano civil rights activists, noting the solidarity represented in the historical event, revived the celebration as a mark of pride and recognition of what we can achieve together. By the 1980s, brands had co-opted the celebration to capture revenue from the growing Latinx audience historically overlooked. And making the holiday mainstream offered brands, particularly alcoholic ones, to commercialize a cultural reason for everyone to drink in early May. The date is now one of the biggest days for beer sales in the U.S. each year. Meanwhile, in Mexico, observing the anniversary of the battle only happens in Puebla, where it occurred. The state is also rife with cultural appropriation. Much of the practices related to Cinco de Mayo don't truly honor Mexican culture and history. But avoiding appropriation on this date isn't enough. Today should also celebrate the importance of solidarity and resistance that protects Mexico's unique cultural identities. And these times, solidarity couldn't be more urgent. The national debate over immigration and racist comments by former President Trump has led to hate crimes against the Latinx community increasing steadily since the 1990s, peaking in 2019. Latinx Americans are three times more likely to be hospitalized because of COVID-19 than white Americans, and the number of people crossing the border from Mexico has remained at a 20-year high over the past few months. U.S. authorities took 172,331 migrants into custody in March, including over 17,000 children and teens without their parents. There's nothing wrong with getting some tacos and drink after work today without appropriation and socially distanced, of course. But if you're going to participate, consider that this day represents far more. To truly honor it, recognize the depth of its history and stand in solidarity for collective liberation. So you can donate to mutual aid networks in your community, particularly one that supports the Latinx community. If you choose to participate in the Americanized version of the holiday, 
Shop from Latinx-owned restaurants and businesses. Shop um, at Latinx has a curated selection of good goods. Okay. Um, so shop Latinx, it looks like that is an online uh, business. So reflect on what solidarity means to you. How can you practice solidarity more authentically? Who in your community is modeling solidarity? Uh, so you can subscribe to their daily newsletter, um, Anti-Racism Daily. Uh, Nicole A. Cardoza is the founder, um, and I, I'm really always impressed by everything that this account puts out there because the, the infographics are very to the point, and there are references to each of these statements made based on you know news articles and journalism. So you can find that on Instagram. They have 606,000 followers, which is pretty great. <laughs> I'm so glad that good information's getting out there. So they cover a number of um, social justice matters, uh, cultural context things. Really cool. So you can support and subscribe at Anti-Racism Daily on Instagram or through their newsletter. So I just thought I would start off with a little information there, but um, hey, it's still tourist season and I wanted to go over the May ingresses or planetary motions and movements that are coming up. So this week on May 3rd, Mercury moved into Gemini, its home sign. And we're not quite yet to Gemini season, but this, this movement from Mercury and Taurus into Mercury in Gemini um, sort of brings about this like kind of networking and reconnection point that we all do uh, with that Gemini context. So, you know, Mercury is this transcendental energetic being, really fascinating planet because of its quick motion. Um, travels around every 88 days, uh, goes into retrograde two to three times a year. Um, we do have a retrograde coming up at the end of the month, but have no fear. <laughs> Everything's going to be great. Um, so Mercury represents communication uh, at its most base level. Um, it, it's about how we think and how we ground, how we can navigate our own internal territory and bring forth those words through communication, whether that be through speech, through dance, movement, writing, uh, any forms of communication are related to Mercury along with connections and short distance traveled, our neighbors, our siblings, children. These are all under the guise of Mercury because of their sort of androgynous conception, the way that they, that they move through the world and that they're often the messengers that connect one thing to the next. Um, so, so Mercury, uh, historically in Greek mythology, has been this connective point that can travel to the tops of heavens, down into the psychopomp aspect, into the realms of, of Hades and the underworld, right? The subconscious. So I think Mercury in our chart, uh, along with its natal placement, along with our third house aspects, which is Gemini's house and, and Mercury's strong association with that, along with any planets that we have in Gemini, can often um, express to us how we communicate, how we connect with others, where we're really good at negotiating. Uh, also where we can be kind of liars because Mercury, uh, in its cleverness, 
is well known for that ability to be deceptive in order to protect uh, self-preservation and their goals and ambitions. So Mercury and Gemini, and this is such a great time for movement and expression and speaking and communicating and thinking differently and, and being curious and sort of reviving that internal realm of uh, childlike curiosity. Uh, this can also associate with the nervous system. So I would absolutely interject that if you are feeling anxious, <laughs> as many of us are in these times, remember to breathe, slow down. Um, I could encourage a, a box breath, which is a new breathing method that I've uh, been getting familiar with, thanks to Haley Nichol, who is an amazing breathwork teacher out of Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, you can check out Breath of Rebellion on Instagram or on her website. So the box breath is, it's traditional. It's not something like, you know, I'm making up on the spot. Uh, it's the idea that visual of five, one, two, three, four, five in, and then holding the breath at the top, five, four, three, two, one, exhaling, five, four, three, two, one, out hold, one, two, three, four, five, in breath, one, two, three, four, five, hold, one, two, three, four, five, exhale, five, four, three, two, one, hold at the bottom, and then inhale, hold, exhale, hold, there, now you have it. Right? So now you have a new tool to work with. There you go. Quick win for the day. The box breath. Five in, hold for five, exhale for five, hold at the bottom for five, and repeat. Pretty easy little dance of breath there. And because Gemini is an air sign and Mercury navigates through space and air, uh, such a great way to kind of reconnect with the self, to ground the self. And we have Venus moving into Gemini this Saturday. Um, that's, I mean, that's really about valuing the connections and community that we that we build at its most base level. I think that's really beautiful. Um, Mercury is going to be conjunct the North Node on the 10th. We have a Taurus new moon on the 11th, which is next Tuesday. Uh, Jupiter is going to move into Pisces on the 13th. So we'll get more in depth into that next week. But uh, this move for an outer planet to move and change signs. I mean, yes, Jupiter switches signs about every two years. Uh, but I want you to think about where you were in September of 2010. That's the last time that Jupiter was in Pisces. So maybe think about the themes and some of the, the bigger moves in your life at that time. What you were doing. Take a moment to consider that September 2010, the fall of 2010. Were you? Where were you? Who were you? <laughs> That's a better question. It's been a while since then. So Jupiter moving into Pisces. Um, this is, you know, before there was the discovery of Neptune, which is the modern ruler for Pisces. Jupiter was the traditional ruler. So there was a connection between the mutable signs and Jupiter and Mercury. 
So think about that. We have Pisces ruled by Jupiter and Sagittarius ruled by Jupiter. Virgo and Gemini ruled by Mercury. So these mutable signs, the energy therein, there's a connection between how we learn, how we connect, how we educate ourselves and how we interact in those types of environments. Um, Jupiter is often kind of overlooked in the chart as this idea of like, oh, it's like where your luck is, like, you know, it's a, it's a beneficial planet. But there is so much more to, to Jupiter's expansive energy. It's, it's also known as the planet of the masters, where we find mastery through the efforts of the sign that it's in and the house placement that it's in. Definitely work, worth regarding. So get in touch with me if you want to do a reading. We can talk more about Jupiter in your chart. But this movement from Jupiter into Pisces on May 13th is, is, a, is a big, big shift change. You know, it's going to drift in and out of Pisces. It'll be there for a couple months and kind of connect back into Aquarius. But I know that my dreams have been sort of uh, expressing this idea of like the movement from Aquarius into Pisces. It's, you know, how... I mean, you can think about Aquarius with technology and community and those those larger, broader pictures. And then Pisces kind of expands it out into this broader realm of like sort of blessing all aspects, right? The watery connections of all life. So Jupiter in Pisces is, is significantly known as a very optimistic and beneficial time period. So let us experience this reign of blessings after a very strange period <laughs> with Jupiter in Aquarius and then that, that great conjunction back in December. Let's see. So the sun will move into Gemini on the 20th and then sun will square Jupiter on the 21st. Mercury, Mercury, Mercury squared to Neptune on the 22nd, Saturn in retrograde on the 23rd, and then we have the magnificent lunar eclipse on the full moon on the 26th between Sagittarius and Gemini. And there'll be another eclipse on June 10th, the solar eclipse. Uh, it won't be total, but uh, the total lunar eclipse on the 26th. Um, maybe figure out where your where your nodes are in your chart or where Gemini and Sagittarius are located. This is going to be in the end degree, the teens. Um, I think it's at 19 degrees. Uh, don't quote me on that one. I, I have a lot of notes sitting out right now. Um, but maybe, maybe figuring out where Gemini and Sagittarius connect in your chart. That would be a good thing to look forward to. But finishing up Taurus season, um, we're not even there yet. <laughs> we're not even we're not even finished with this beautiful fixed time of year. Um, I hope that you had a, a beautiful Beltane weekend. The weather's finally shifted into the energy of summer here in Wisconsin. Still at like 50 degrees, but there is certainly uh, the brightness in the sky at 6 a.m. The birds that I can hear right now. The sun is shining. Uh, the trees are flowering. The pollen is pouring out. The allergies are making all of the snotty nose things happen. Uh, today on my Instagram, I decided to post about things that you can do for allergies. So just to fill you in, uh, getting a neti pot or some kind of sinus irrigation will be hugely supportive to keeping your snoot clean during the season, especially if you really suffer from seasonal allergies. Uh, by cleaning out our sinus cavity using a saline solution, which is typically sea salt and tepid water, um, you can get cans of saline that you can squirt up your nose. You can find that in any health food store. 
Um, but those natural remedies can really help us to hydrate and keep those sinus sinuses nice and moisturized and keeping all that pollen out of our out of our nostrils. That usually helps with mucus production and uh, relieves some of the the tension. Because um, I know that sinus headaches are brutal, especially during allergy season. It can create a lot of tension in the head and skull. Uh, probiotics surprisingly because you know 80% of our immune system is in the gut so uh, if you're hurting cut out inflammatory foods maybe knock out the sugar for a minute Um, you know dairy soy eggs and wheat are those main allergens that can create inflammation on the inside of our body so if you're extra mucus producing, maybe lay off the milk for a minute if that's a thing for you. Um, or just increase your water intake if you don't want to give up your creamer and your coffee. <laughs> no judgment here. Uh, so yeah, staying hydrated, um, reducing inflammatory foods, um, getting exercise, getting enough sleep. All of those things are super important to take care of your little terrarium of your, your body and your being. Um, and if you are not on blood thinners, of course, you can look into herbal remedies that can be supportive, uh, stinging nettle, uh, food-based uh, antioxidants like quercetin, which is sourced from lemon peel, bromelain from pineapple. These are enzymes that help to break down and digest uh, those, those things that create inflammation. Uh, people take bromelain to help with, with meals and digestion. Uh, papain from papaya. That, I mean, that's that's why they have those little chewable papaya tablets. Um, I know a lot of people benefit from taking local bee pollen, uh, which you usually can find that in a jar, the little chunks of yellow deliciousness. It's a weird taste when you first try out bee pollen, but you might get a you might get a taste for it. It's pretty good, uh, especially on a little a uh, little bit of coconut oil. It's a nice uh, pick me upper snack. If you're needing a little brain food chock full of minerals and B vitamins. So even if it doesn't work, it's going to be a great, super nutritious food for you. Uh, I have a friend that uses spirulina, which is, uh, you know, gram for gram, the most protein and nutrient dense food on the planet from what I understand uh, with my supplement training. Uh, Spirulina is, you know, green algae from ocean and it's just packed full of nutrients. It's nature's multivitamin. So that's always another nice option. Um, But again, superfoods aren't going to fix everything. If you need to go to the doctor or take over the counter allergy medicine, uh, I, I can't be around horses without my face just like filling up with like flooding liquid goo. Uh, so I, I, I take uh, over-the-counter stuff that is a lot stronger than my Aller 7 support or any of the other natural remedies that I take. So no shame there. This is a both-and world that we live in. So that's, that's me helping out there. <laughs> I don't know how that's related to tourist season other than the shift in the weather. Um, but, you know, let's think about the earth element. It's a fixed element. It means it's about sustaining. So what Aries starts out with, Taurus sustains. Usually stays very calm, cool, collected. So if you have planets and Taurus in your chart, usually there's like a slow plodding 
uh, building blocks sort of energy with that. So with Taurus, the word building is always going to be a really important component to that. What are you building with your life right now? What are you sort of gaining tread on? What is your long view? What is your long game that Taurus energy can help you plod and move towards? Venus being the ruler of Taurus and the season, there's a very, very deep connection between those. There's a lot of relational energy there with Venus because Venus is how we connect, how we attract our lessons, how we attract the people that we need in our lives. So thinking about Venus things, it's not only about what we think is shiny and beautiful and pleasurable and enjoyable, but it's, it's also the lessons that we bring in. Some food for thought there. Been thinking a lot about um, climate activism, being that it was Earth Day the other week. Um, my partner Timothy Minch wrote a really great article in Discover Magazine, so I'm just plugging this because I think it's a really important uh, piece of work on some of the lies that we've experienced as consumers with big oil and some of the big plastic energies, you know, as petroleum plastics, big plastics, and how that affects our lives. Um, so this this article is called um, <laughs> How You Can Save the Planet, How to Save Planet Earth, uh, which is not too sexy of a title. I think eco-stential crisis is the term that Timothy put out there to the editors. And I love that term eco-stential crisis because we're all living in that. You know, think of the word existential, but eco-stential what do we what do we do every shopping trip uh, creates this anxiety in us what you know do i get the local organic thing but it's wrapped in plastic do i get the glass jar do i shop in bulk this is more expensive how do i afford it there's there's a lot of a lot of things that we consumers are experiencing including climate grief um i think that that's another layer that uh, if, if you ever think about it, it can take you to some dark places. Uh, coral reef loss, endangered species, planets. Uh, it's, it's a lot. Um, it's a lot to go through. And so what this article suggests, you know, based on the, the five interviews that Timothy did with climate activists and climate scientists... Uh, I mean, there's a blog called How to Save a Planet, um, which is a podcast by Ayana Elizabeth Johnson. A lot of books out there, Inconspicuous Consumption by Tatiana Schlossberg. Um, there's, I mean, this, this article is pretty long and pretty, pretty intensive, but I think that the good takeaway is that, um, you know, remembering that you as a consumer have been lied to by these companies that tell us that if we recycle that if we do everything right that it's on us when actually uh it's kind of on them it's not kind of it is on them by creating systems that are faulty that don't work that are costly to the environment costly to us as consumers and to our resources you know, Taurus season is about resource. You know, think about second house stuff, what we value, what we find important, what material stuff that we have, the clothes on our back, the foods in our stores, all of that is related to, to Taurus. So that's why I'm bringing this up. But the, the main thing is that you can, you can't do it all, but you can pick one thing and do it well. And you know, whatever that is for you, you know, I know that zero waste has been an important movement. 
writing letters is important, agricultural practices, are you going to walk more rather than driving your car, are you going to take the bus, are you going to eliminate plastics from your life, right? Uh, I think that plastics is the thing that I've been meditating the most on is, is my piece that I would like to do some more work on. You know, I, I had Megan Evans on the show and I think her big thing is uh, the clothing industry and how wasteful production of clothing is not only for the peoples, but for the environment involved in the labor of making clothing. Um, and that, that her thing is shop vintage, right? As seen on me, uh, if you remember that show or if you've, if you've checked her out online or if you're in the Des Moines area. <laughs> Um, you know, for me, plastics, because it is a hormone disruptor and because of my mother's having estrogen dominant breast cancer and having so many clients who have female issues that are highly likely related to the endocrine systems and the toxicity that comes from plastics in our environment. If you're not aware, plastic acts as a xenoestrogen, a hormone mimicker. And this goes for uh, male-bodied and female-bodied people, all bodies. Um, I don't mean to be specific to uh, those with uteruses, but because estrogen is part of um, humans with vulvas, namely, uh, estrogen can be really problematic for all types of health issues. And for um, those with testes, uh, as, as they're kind of hormone sites in the body, this can be problematic. Um, I, I don't like the word man boobs, but it's what comes to mind because of uh, estrogens and obesity and low sperm count and what this is doing to our environment. Uh, so plastics are a huge problem. And the fact that we're still creating cars that consume fossil fuels, uh, I mean, this is, a, this is a big picture issue. And I think that's why ecostential crisis is such an appropriate term, I think, for what's going on in the world right now. So do what you can where you can. If, you're, you, know, if you own a business, what can you do to make some environmental shifts? Uh, can you educate your employees? What can you do in your home life? How can you teach your kids you know, differently? Um, all the little things do add up. Uh, so that's why I'm bringing this sort of uh, front and center for the moment. Because I feel like it's, it's important um, to be good. Not just citizens. Citizens is not the word that I'm looking for, but like the guardians of this beautiful terra that we live upon, this beautiful earth. This episode is brought to you by K Apothecary out of Mount Vernon, Iowa. Uh, Andrea Gorsh was on a few weeks ago, and we did an interview expressing her story and the the becomings of K Apothecary and how that came to be. And Kay is this beautiful community, not just a shop full of sundries and crystals and herbs and concoctions and candles and books and literature. It, it contains a whole vibrant life inside of it where you can go get readings performed for numerology and tarot uh, now that things are opening up again. That you can go in and get information, that you can exchange, talk, and sit and read and have a cup of tea, right? So Andrea's enthusiasm and vivacity and, and her as a numerologist is such a gift. And I've been getting feedback from 
listeners like you that have gone and had a reading with her since that conversation. Um, I know that she was like a direct infusion of like love and fire just right back into my heart. Uh, So I I feel like um, so much gratitude for the space that they're creating, not only in person in Mount Vernon, Iowa, but the the community that is being built online through their weekly workshops, anything from numerology, the number nerds, the witching hour, which is a, a kind of a different speakers come in and discuss different matters related to the craft or to intentional lifestyles, whatever that looks like in the mystical field and tarot and writing (laughs) so there's like a writing prompts that can be done anyway you should go check those out online and get involved but k apothecary has a whole uh, online uh, shop there that you can check out and totally worth a while in having a look and connecting with k so thank you to andrea gorsh for supporting the inspired astrology podcast through k apothecary Uh, I am bringing on an interview that was done back in February with Capricorn sun sign Jimmy Betts. And Jimmy is an enigma. I can't think of any other word to describe Jimmy Betts. Um, I ran into them at an Irish jam in Des Moines, Iowa, maybe 10 years back. And their presence is just so electric and so inspiring to, to be around. That was just someone I wanted to be friends with right away. And it's probably because I'm a weirdo and Jimmy's a weirdo. We're both nerds. We both kind of connect with that outlier community. And we've sort of uh, woven in and out of each other's paths over the years. Um, But like our big crossroads moment was uh, when Jimmy, along with 50 other marchers, crossed the country in the Great March for Climate Change. Uh, that started off in Los Angeles, California, and they made it all the way to New York City, where they ended up in my loft in Red Hook, Brooklyn, where my former and I hosted about 13 uh, very exhausted marchers uh, before they made their final uh, attempt to Washington, D.C. And this was in, I think, 2013, if I remember correctly, uh, Hurricane Sandy had happened in Brooklyn and brought a lot of information about climate change because uh, Brooklyn, New York had never been hit by a hurricane before. And it was massively damaging to the community where I lived in Red Hook and for the company that I once worked for, Made, a design and build firm in Red Hook, Brooklyn. Uh, so it was an architecture firm in these old Civil War warehouses that just completely flooded and damaged all the equipment, everything that was there. And when I, um, you know, started working for them, I got involved in a lot of the uh, sort of the action plans that were going on in that neighborhood about what to do for future efforts against climate change and how it was creating problems uh, in an enclave that had never experienced that before. So they they marched for seven or eight months, nine months, and arrived in Brooklyn. Uh, got involved with a lot of climate change resources that were happening in New York at that time. And then the Great March that happened with millions and mi- millions of people. Uh, and I got to be a part of that. I got to support Jimmy and them at a crucial time uh, in that group and that society. And also got to witness something really special, uh, the type of roving community that only exists in those kinds of 
collected efforts. Uh, so Jimmy has been involved with climate activism for a long time. They have a background in martial arts, uh, medical uh, qigong, and some acupuncture background there, teaching meditation, teaching a lot of mindfulness methods, and you know, then ended up doing climate activism and direct action. So we had a nice, long, amazing conversation, and I'm so excited for you to hear this. Uh, I felt like it was really expressive of Taurus season and our connection with our communities sort of leading into Gemini and our connection with the environment and what we can do to be more supportive. Uh, so for now, stay inspired. Hello. Hello. So I would love for you to tell me the journey of your contradiction that you're currently living in. <laughs> But I want to know about where you grew up and what brought you to social activism and where you are now. All the stories. I want to hear everything. Oh, okay. Um, I will try and be concise because it's a bit of a meandering path. But again, we're meandering peoples. So I wasn't actually born on this continent. Uh, I was, I'll say, internationally adopted. But again, with that comes issues of, of human trafficking as well. So However, I fall on that spectrum. I, I don't exactly know. Um, but either way, I was adopted from South Korea uh, to North Omaha, Nebraska. And my parents still live there to this day. And uh, the community that I grew up within was predominantly black. And I was the only non-black person of color there, uh, growing up at least. Um, and so I had a very different conception of of the world, I think, than if I would have grown up in a rural farm community or if I had grown up in a, mm -hmm. a more diverse uh, city, uh, in particular, like a larger city in the Midwest, like maybe Chicago. Yeah. So that, that was just generally early formative years. Definitely not common. Um, definitely a lot of identity related issues, uh, although there wasn't ever anything that was uh, withheld from me. So my parents were very open about being adopted and how ultimately love transcends issues of, of blood and ancestry in that way. And I didn't know how much I appreciated it at the time because I was a kid, <laughs> but I know that I never felt as though I was not loved and that my parents were just, uh, I guess, putting up an act for me. But yeah, that was kind of elementary school. And then after that, I uh, was able to get into sort of a, a magnet program. I don't know, even know if they still use that term, but a uh, place that really focuses on math, science, more advanced learning for like middle school uh, on up through high school. A uh, part of it was interest and part of it out of, I guess, I don't know if it was fairness or not, but was uh, sort of a lottery based system. And so I was both fortunate enough to be interested in, in going to a different level of education uh, because I was a big nerd, even as a, as a little kid. But I also didn't make the lottery the first time around. And so I was on a waiting list that, um, and at the very last minute, I think it was on the fourth day of school of my fourth grade, my dad comes into the classroom and is like, well, everybody, <laughs> uh, we're going to take Jimmy to another school. <laughs> and it was just sort of a very quick transition. And I don't actually think I got to say goodbye to any of my friends uh, who I'd known for at that point about five years. Um, and that was my home neighborhood. So I was put on a bus to uh, more of a 
downtown school at that point. So it was a bit of a culture shock for me as well, because I actually had a, <laughs> I had white people in my classroom <laughs> for like the first time. Yeah, it was just uh, more of a, they actually called it, oh, what did they even say? They didn't quite use the term desegregation, but they used about as close as you possibly could to using the word desegregation without saying it. So then what happened after that? Mm -hmm. So you start this magnet school, you're a teenager. What, what, what shifted with your interests? Like who was 13 year old Jimmy? Oh, geez. Uh, 13 year old me, uh, still a nerd. Oh my gosh. Okay. Let's science fair. Um, I did the experiments with data loss on, at the time, they were floppy disks <laughs> for computers uh, to see what strength, uh, I think it was measured in Gauss as opposed to other other things that I would not have known about as, as a younger kid, using different orientations and strengths of magnets to, <laughs> to see if a uh, quantifiable change of data loss, which again, how to measure that with non-sophisticated like Mac, like Apple, sorry, Apple IIe computers, um, it just... It worked. Uh, definitely found data loss, but that's about it. It was either yes or no. Did the magnet screw this disk up and then chart it on a graph and make it into a pretty science fair presentation board. That was one year. <laughs> uh, and others were related to hermit crabs and different uh, things related to the diet of hermit crabs. And another one was related to, oh, uh, Venus flytraps. It got the... I don't know, purple, blue ribbon, whatever, I think every year, I think. Uh, but again, I'm a nerd. I... When did when did all like the music and martial arts and all the things, when did that shift happen for you? High school, I went to uh, substantially larger, like considered big city, I guess. I think we had a class of, I don't know, 500, which again, for like a major city, maybe not so big, but at least for me, that was a lot. Didn't really get into music at all yeah we can talk about that later i got into it much later in life i wish i would have uh gone along with my mom's um piano instruction because she she plays piano to this day um and i just would not adhere to the teaching training regimen that she put out for me on saturday morning when cartoons were on television so it just was destined to fail yeah, yeah, high school, again, I was bored most of the time. Throughout most of formal education, I'm, I'm pretty bored. I got to play with some higher level math because it was a, a science high school as well. So differential equations and calculus three and all of this uh, discrete math stuff going on and AP courses, that type of thing. But most of my friends were, I guess, I don't know how they define themselves, but they were kind of skater kids and uh, into punk rock music and uh, all my friends smoked. I still don't smoke to this day, but <laughs> it's just, uh, I don't want to, we weren't outsiders because at that point, you know, I was still kind of a social butterfly and got along with most people in high school. And I think at that point I was a little bit too much in the, in the gym and in the weight room and back doing really physical things. And again, part of that's just sort of wanting to be strong because you need to keep up with everybody else because like mentally, Intellectually, I was doing just fine. That was not the issue, but it's always now an issue that I experience as an adult in a very different way because as a kid, you're always trying to keep up. And again, I wasn't necessarily like a tall person. I'm still not a tall person now. And so just trying different ways to be more capable and able in my very narrow understanding of the world that time too. So 
a lot of weight, a lot of weight training. I think I, I weighed the most I ever have because of the amount of weight training I did at that point too. And I also understood then that it was not a sustainable practice to be doing that for me. <laughs> so got to learn the hard way sometimes through injuries, um, which is also what uh, sort of led me into more restorative practices. So that's mm -hmm. martial arts and uh, what people would probably just consider more asana based yoga. So exercising the mind, exercising the body. Like, did you have a lot of excess energy as a kid? Were you like, like go, 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 or were you more um, like receptive and thinky or? Um, I remember being hyper <laughs> quite a bit or, or at least probably annoying. I could still be pretty annoying if I, if I really, <laughs> if I really get into it and I'm feeling mischievous, but my parents, I remember asking them, uh, I think uh, there was only one time when I like acted out in a way that had to be sort of disciplined and otherwise really well behaved. I'll call it conformist. I don't know. Um, and again, sort of that contemplative nerd type of uh, going on in the world. Uh, but I think that's also where sort of the physical realm came into it because there was a lot of, that needed to be expressed that, you know, you can do a lot through. Uh, through reading and writing and research. But I also was not a competitive person. So team sports, just not interesting to me at all. If, if anything, it was like, why, why does somebody have to, <laughs> to win? Or why does one team have to win? Why can't we like do something together? And so even at that point, I was, you know, thinking about that, but not having uh, the lexicon for it at all. I couldn't really discuss it. I didn't know what I was getting into. But again, I think I also picked up some of that from my mom, who's a social worker of many, many, many years, I think 43 years. The other people of Korean descent that I have met, I, again, I, I, I really, I don't pity people as much as I possibly can. I don't pity them. But seeing how growing up in a lot of uh, rural, white, Midwestern situations, all the say situations, family situations, adoptive situations, where you're indoctrinated to the point of basically hating the skin you're in, if that makes sense, if you understand kind of that meaning that like you're denying your own, I guess, ethnicity, your race, or at least you're understanding you're less than the people who raised you and that you've basically been saved. So experiencing a number of those situations and people, it's a little heartbreaking for me. So I, I feel as though I was extremely fortunate, even more so than just simply hey, I have a family, be grateful. It's like, yes. And also the family that I'm a part of is amazing. I'm not, I'm not saying that because they've conditioned me to have that response. If anything, I didn't appreciate that growing up as much as I do now. After having met a lot of people who have no questions about the adoption process, I mentioned earlier sort of uh, human trafficking related to international adoption and how a lot of money changes hands in order to get, we'll just say, an Asian baby or an African baby who uh, oftentimes it's like uh, white uh, American European parents. And so that whole type of skin trade is, is pretty disturbing to think about. And it's definitely an issue, even though a lot of people who are very just blindly pro-adoption. Yeah, totally. All, I guess uh, in terms of adoption, what that means to me today, um, I don't know that I'm committed or necessarily have specific interests to pursue like having biological children of my own, but I'm definitely open to uh, adoption. Um, again, having the right constellation of the people involved, you know, the whole 
it takes a village. I, I still believe that. However, that village may be configured over over time, distance, space, all that as well. You uh, know, in, in a way to help pay it forward as well, knowing that there are plenty of children out there who probably use good a good people. home, um, or at least good people. We talked earlier about uh, you know Asian yeah. culture, this the you know study of martial arts and qigong and and all of that like so you started watching cartoons you talked about that sacred saturday morning time screw you piano uh i was probably pretty averse at least to pursuing uh knowledge of even my own birth culture like my parents did a pretty decent job of of exposing me to to what they could Mm -hmm. of korean culture there just wasn't much of a korean community that i knew of or that they knew of in omaha uh but damn they tried (laughs) they tried to expose me to as many different cultures as we possibly could and travel and all of these other things to help out with that um that process of not growing up close-minded but i think the earliest memories that i oh they're they're not good memories unfortunately because some of this was related to uh like racial stereotyping and things like that so it was it was oftentimes i would uh, some would would yell derogatory terms at me associated with being a perceived Asian person and then also tying into whatever that person's understanding of like some person that they knew who happened to be Asian that they've seen on TV so it was either like a uh, a Bruce Lee joke or at the time when I was growing up uh, both Jackie Chan and then later like Jet Li uh, were coming to the U.S. basically in terms of of popular releases in theaters um, and so there was a lot of that going on. So it wasn't, again, all stereotypes are technically bad, but at least for those, it's like, cool. Yeah, I, I like martial arts movies, so that's great. <laughs> and so earlier on, that's kind of what I was left with. And I tried, I think my, yeah, my parents enrolled me in uh, whatever they could find in terms of martial arts as a, as a much younger kid, probably five or six, something like that. And it was, it was Taekwondo. So it was of Korean descent, although definitely different. It was tournament style Taekwondo. It wasn't necessarily a, a practical system, which I appreciate more now, <laughs> knowing knowing what I know now. And I got bored with the tournament uh, point system. Honestly, I just didn't. I don't feel like competing. Why can't we just learn this for some practical use? And this is me as a kid. I definitely just kind of took a step away from martial arts for most of the time up until high school, um, which is where. I got into traditional Chinese systems of, of wellness, uh, what my teacher called uh, life arts. And so that was uh, basically related to like different paths that are part of one path. And so you have the warrior, the healer, the scholar, and the sage. And the sage is sort of the transmutational process that brings all of those together and is based in meditation practice and self-realization practice. And so that was super profound that I didn't even really realize I was getting into at the time uh, because it was just martial arts to start. My first impression of you was of wisdom, you know, of somebody who was trying to bring it all together, but also that you fit everywhere and nowhere at the same time. I guess because you were carrying a violin and you had like funny bright colored clothes on and it was an Irish jam festival or something. Jeez. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah yep. To, I mean, sounds, it sounds like you're kind of... That sounds right like for the time. <laughs> what you described, the warrior, the healer, the scholar, and the sage, because I think that you've kind of navigated all of those territories in such a short amount of time. You know, I mean, you're you're still 
you're not a young man, you know, but you're not a, like a middle-aged man or anything. It's, it's, it's been really neat to watch your journey. And I guess like, did, did you go to college? Did that come after high school? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, the city that I'm currently in, uh, Ames in Iowa, so-called Iowa, uh, is also the place I graduated uh, from Iowa State University. Why I'm still here, I don't know. It's a lesson that I must be learning. I'm sure. I'm sure of it. <laughs> Again, in in college, I was brought with disillusionment, uh, which is maybe not exactly where um, I got onto the I guess social movement, social justice oriented path. Um, but it's definitely where I understood much more intimately institutional power, institutional exploitation, um, and then also. Oh, it's where I kind of uh, began to slough off what I think was still being considered by me like an American dream, not maybe the American dream, but, um, you know, go to college and get a job and get a house. And so a lot of those things lined up after college and I was supremely dissatisfied by that situation. Um, And so after going through that, that institutionalization process, I just knew that I had to do what I could to, to break out of what I had found myself in, um, even if it would take you know, time. And clearly, it's still taking time now. Um, and in, in terms of the degrees that I was pursuing earlier on was a dual degree in computer and electrical engineering, uh, which honestly, the coursework is great. I love doing that because it's problem solving and it's theoretical and potentially practical, but the end result for me may have been like, here's a six figure income, but you're not necessarily contributing to the betterment of, of anyone. You're probably gonna be working for a multinational corporation that can afford to pay you that six figure income and more than likely feed into the military industrial complex at the time. And I don't feel bad about that aside from sometimes wishing I had some extra money to give to people. <laughs> that's, that's the big thing right now. Um, but I'm glad I didn't go that route. Um, the people that I was also enrolled in classes with, I had some good friends, but by and large folks that I, mm, I, I wouldn't want to be working alongside of, um, as well as people that were both professors and, uh, job career people that came in from, uh, for the recruitment fairs that were not folks I would emulate They They wouldn't be considered like mentors or heroes or uh, even teachers to some extent to me. It just wasn't something that I I wanted to pursue further. And so after three and a half years of doing that, uh, I decided to cut my own path and take whatever classes I wanted to for as long as I possibly could until they either revoked, (laughs) revoked my admission because I wasn't on their career path anymore, or I graduated. And so I fortunately was able to eke it out and take a bunch of other classes that were interesting to me and still get a degree in an unrelated major because we'll just say that business degrees are pretty bonkers in general when it comes down to it for for what the requirements are. Uh, it turns out at least at this I, with the American dream, you know, and to be in your early 20s when that happened, I think. I just don't know. You don't have that context. You don't have that construct. At least I don't think in our generation that we did. I, I mean, I was 
such a pothead in high school that I really, it's, it's a miracle that they got me to go to college at all. Right. And that I, that I got through my SATs, you know, um, running out the door. I was really like, I, that was me in high school is that if I didn't like something, I would just get up and leave. Um, common practice of mine is just to like walk out and I would like walk to a coffee shop or my dad's office, like somewhere like, you know, close to Valley high school. And he would always drive me back and drop me off. Fortunately, good dad. Um, about like you, you (laughs) had this, but this doesn't, I don't like any of these people. This is not, these are not my people and I don't want to be a part of this. Um, there's a lot of wisdom in that. I think Jimmy, like that you didn't sell yourself out. Otherwise, you know, you probably would have end up balking the system after securing a six figure job or, you know, something like that life somewhere very wealthy. <laughs> uh, probably married uh, to someone that I didn't love. <laughs> Again, we could extrapolate all we want on this one, but uh, I, I'm, I don't regret the, the decision I made. I've, I've met enough awesome people, including yourself, that I would not have met at all, even come I think close growing to. Growing up, the most crestfallen I've ever been in my life was like in my my late teens when I figured that out. You know that that adults don't always know what they're doing; that they can be just as shitty as a fourteen year old, or just as you know, just as angry and bitter. Um, I to see the world a lot yeah. differently. Um, and I, I would never be one of those shitty women, you know, that never grew up and wasn't kind to a younger person or who found competition or, I don't know, there's just like a lot of weird shit between young and old, you know, like in, in our culture, we really lack this natural rhythm of things where the yeah. competition is so insidious that it destroys our ability to have relationships with one another. Um, I want to be that guy. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> So yeah, you yeah. still have the damn house, but Ugh. you've been out on a lot of adventures since then. Cause I met you in Des Moines. Were you just commuting between Ames and Des Moines for community events or were you doing um, food, not bombs or what, like what happened in your twenties? I had this house, um, a, a locally headquartered small startup that uh, did online marketing of uh I guess table meat, <laughs> all things. Um, little farmhouse uh, near Ames, Iowa, and so I was doing that. And so I had this mortgage still, and so I needed to find work. And so another case of me having to just find whatever work was available. And here's in addition to now me working for big plastic, big petrochem. Um, didn't realize at the time I was working for a Monsanto subsidiary that was going by a different name entirely. Um, it was just a small farming town south of Ames. Um, my mortgage uh, and also, you know, helped to erode my soul a little bit at the time. Uh, part of it was not knowing. And then part of it was once realizing it, it's like, I, I can't not work here. And so I had to figure out something pretty quickly to get the transition to something else that at least I was more ethically aligned with. Um, moved down to Des Moines um, and then commuted back and forth. Ames uh, for a while. Uh, I worked for a medical software company in West Des Moines um, for about two years, I think. Um, and eventually I moved down to Des Moines and just had my house in Ames uh, rented out to some friends. Um, again, this is a pattern of just me, again, bucking against 
bureaucratic systems or corporate systems or have a low tolerance for fuckery if it doesn't lead to something better. <laughs> and so, uh, and even then, I have a low tolerance for fuckery. Um, but at least for the per Des Moines, it was super helpful because I was able to meet uh, a lot of excellent people who, some of whom are still my friends now. And so um, when I am in Des Moines, mm -hmm. I always have uh, a home. Um, there's not a whole lot more that I'll say for myself, there's not a whole lot more that I need in the world uh, than to have a home. I uh, don't need a house, but <laughs> having a home uh, wherever I go is something I'm super grateful for out there in the world. Um, I was in Des Moines for a little while, and since then, uh, after quitting that job, sorry, going back to the, the medical software company, after, after getting out of that uh, decided to go back into the realm of pursuing more of a direct service route. So I uh, went to school to get my uh, LMT, uh, massage therapy license in Omaha. So I was able to get back to Omaha uh, regularly to see my parents while still basically living in Des Moines and doing my practicals there. Um, had some awesome knowledge of healing arts. Um, but body wisdom, amazing. Uh, one of my dear ones dear and really enjoyed the time there and if anything oh, i don't want to say that's my only formal experience of enjoying um like an educational program uh <laughs> but kind of <laughs> um also traveling at that point um i was between so throughout my entire college career uh i was teaching anywhere from i think three to six uh classes per week um of uh and qigong and different healing therapies so during like the entire time i was going to school i was also teaching which was far more interesting for me and then everywhere else uh that i had time i was training and so that was the most i've been able to train in a sustained way um between six and eight hours a day which is a lot i look back now and it's like how did i have time to do the training the teaching and just attending classes and i don't i don't know where i don't know i bent time somehow um process i had to stop teaching for a number of reasons uh some of it was uh financial and so going having to have a full-time job is one of those reasons unfortunately um and so at the time i went back massage therapy it opened up time for me to actually start teaching again so i was also teaching in des moines and ames but more in des moines because i was working down there uh before and that's also kind of the des moines social club at the time when it was on locust a um, bunch of classes throughout town, just like small classes of people that just wanted to learn on some piecemeal things here and there. Um, and that eventually opened up to me training people in Kansas City, um, cities, uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, um, because I just have a teacher there too. So I was able to help out here and there. Um, and then I was also able to then afford to take an ongoing education in martial arts and body work and medical qigong in uh, Toronto and wow. uh, Austin, Texas and like Denver and Boulder, Colorado. And there's something I'm missing, but either way, uh, I was able to kind of really kick into that nomadic lifestyle and the combination of both teaching and learning in the process and being able to sustain that um having quite what i needed in terms of wanting to contribute to society because i would find that the people that i would end up teaching 
we'll just say that they were generally the more affluent people who had plenty of time on their hands and plenty of money to throw around. And that's still to this day, not necessarily the folks that I want to have this knowledge, skill, practice available to first. But I also see the folks who can't afford it and pay extra or pay a premium, whatever, um, to be able to make it so that others who may not have the ability to pay at all uh, can have access to teachings, trainings, and skills for free. So for a while, I tried to do that, but it just wasn't a sustainable thing for me to do in that way either. So it comes back to understanding that I'm still one individual person trying to fight a system <laughs> that is kind of out just to mm, exploit, extract an Asian person who knows martial arts and natural medicines and that type of thing too. So feeling more kind of commodified um, uh, the industry in general. And still to this day, um, the novel is along with that um, uh, a bit of a lie as well, knowing that I'm still enjoying doing all these things and I want to teach people, but having to represent myself in a very explicitly marketable way to audiences that are expecting a very specific offering from a, somebody who looks like me. So anyway, it's a, it's a conflict for me. So I haven't really wanted to. There's a, a shift in the audience because it's broadened. It's kind of pushed beyond those, those walls of it being like a niche market only for the affluent. I think that there's a larger interest and also mm -hmm. people can smell genuine, you know, and I guess that that's the type of people that I want to work with because I don't want to be a flowing love and light woo woo. Where's my white robes? Like, I mean, I, it's problematic enough <laughs> that I'm a white woman yep. doing a traditionally Japanese method, you know, and, and it was passed to the United States through Hawaii by mm -hmm. a master teacher. And like, I, I have to, I have to work with that, you know, because I grid just the same way that you feel about the teachings of Qigong and any of the martial arts and wellness practices that you, that you hold dear to your heart, um, that stuff. And, and we can talk more about how to get out of your own way <laughs> if, if that's a problem. Cause it sounds like what a rich period of education, learning, teaching, moving, touching people, meeting people, you know, happy period for you but mm -hmm. I would I would also be pretty upset if you're just meeting one type of audience and not um, offering it to people who really could could benefit as well you're kind of <laughs> you got it that's that's pretty much it it just wasn't it wasn't enough um, simply the process as well when I would be traveling um, in a very upscaled type of way. Uh, I would just try and do a little bit of outside of the martial arts or the wellness community that I was I was there to kind of entertain. Honestly, yeah, I felt like I was entertaining I, people, um, and I didn't not in this way. Like if I if I'm playing um, an instrument, I then know. I hope hope at least somebody's amused or entertained. But when it's something like this. because this is coming up so much <laughs> in the news and media right now about the hate crimes against. Uh, Asia, sure. have you received any shit in, since the pandemic's gone down? Again, I've done my darndest, my damnedest, my darndest to really steer clear of agro, in particular agro white people, uh, which is kind of hard to do. 
in the Midwest. Um, yeah. uh, but the most I've received, and some of it's probably just because I, the immediate model minority trope, as far as I can tell, being who I am, I don't, most people are just curious about what the fuck or who the fuck I am. Usually it's what the fuck. Um, These days, but I mean, certainly like it's, that's yeah, it's like you're just you, you're very unique. Uh, again, I've also in the past years too, honing different skills related to what people call wilderness survival or survival skills, which I don't call them that if I'm the one who's introducing them to people, I usually call them adaptation skills, earth-based, place-based, people-based skills, not survivalism, because that's, uh, again, super colonial uh, terminology for truly profound skills that are natural, as natural to us as just living and breathing and being human, um, forgotten because of how we're living in a modernized, so-called modernized society. Um, but the, and whether you're trying to blend in or whether you're trying to stand out enough that people are just dazzled and can't really look beyond what you're actually trying to do and oh look a look a costume <laughs> forget the fact that you're you know trying to infiltrate a bank or whatever um just using different strategies uh also in code switching which is um not an unfortunate practice but sometimes it is uh, a bit of identity shift um, where you have to put on and literally wear multiple hats for different audiences if um, you're with that that term um, I don't know if it's nowadays but um, just out of both protection reasons and also just to make sure that you're not getting any Some skills yeah. in certain environments to like either to become less um Mm -hmm. antagonistic or to diffuse situations it like I mean I know how gender plays out for me with code switching mm -hmm. um but I mean for you thing <laughs> you know because I'm I'm you know white and as an adaptive practice um, uh, that comes with like clothing and perception so people really mm -hmm. haven't been harassing you since the pandemic because you don't fit that kind of that trope as you put it it's more of a question of how can I distract somebody enough so they're thinking about this other thing as opposed to why is this person wearing a mask in my store? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that type of thing I, I have had happen, uh, which had nothing. Well, it has everything has to do with race. But that in that case was just more you're wearing a mask and all of us ain't. It's just like, fuck. <laughs> oh, why do OK, I don't want to talk about the pandemic, but it's there. Yeah. <laughs> it's still happening that's why we can't see each other yep. while we're while we're talking right now um some of these finer tuned themes of you kind of navigating so many different spaces jimmy like navigating your skin in growing up in a you know majority black neighborhood majority black school and then switching that into a majority white school and trying to fit your body in and then going to college and recognizing that you don't want to be in that colonial world you want to live in the real world with the rest of of humanity like the real humanity and i i see you kind of like dancing mm -hmm. i'm on the east bank i'm on the west bank i'm on the left side i'm on the right side and code switch word fits right into it but more about the environmental justice work that you were kind of drawn to and you're talking about how natural medicine 
and the energy work and the perceptual work that you've been doing. Um, when, when was the, the switch for that between Canada and Austin and Denver or? Stewing and brewing uh, because like some large, large major cities um, that are more known for hostess and kind of new agey spiritualism things. Uh, but yeah, you know, once I was able to be in some of the larger cities for extended periods of time, because there were times where I was in like Toronto for like three months at a stretch. And I also really am not a fan of living in big cities, <laughs> turns out. Um, see massive disparity and also massive diversity, um, which was definitely opened my eyes to the various experiences that are possible, um, even within like a a block uh in a, in a city um you're living in even like a middle to even larger size midwestern city like it just it just doesn't pop the same way it's not as in your face um there are options to to help out and serve because there are many options to serve as there are people in the world and that was that is pretty much what put me over the edge in terms of once again backing away from almost I almost consider it like serving the private sector if that makes sense in terms of uh, uh um, and really not wanting to do that uh but also wanting to continue learning and also being able to continue to offer free classes for people who uh have the funds in those same cities where I'm teaching these affluent people how to sit 15 minutes <laughs> without talking um really opened up a my, I don't, again, I'm not a woo person. I, I can speak the language, but I, I really personally am a, a practical <laughs> oriented person when it comes down to it. Um, but I want to be able to communicate in ways that will resonate with uh, to the best of me. I, I, I don't want to talk over somebody and I don't want to talk down to someone. Um, some of those lessons too that came from being able to travel initially and teach a very diverse array of, of people who weren't uh, again the the paying affluent people um honestly probably able to use the skills better more efficiently efficiently um than the folks who were paying a premium to do it which for them was a novelty but for folks who were dealing with an example would be like uh living in cities which you know about too uh pollution can be a big issue and sometimes being able to practices to help foster healthy breathing, uh, healthy energy movement, uh, both through meditation, um, especially in the long term, if you're exposed to uh, pollution, um, every, uh, if you're not able to get into a place where you have uh, air conditioning. Me in time with but, this, then, because I, I mean, I, I do want to talk about you know us hanging out in Brooklyn after you'd walked across the whole country, but I don't know what I don't know what led up to that decision. Sure college again I had that uh exposed me more to issues of food justice and transparency and uh consumer confidence and all the loopholes that corporations would use to get an organic seal organic certification um but, or fair trade and not actually be fair trade or um all these words that are thrown around including natural are so missed still to this day and this was go um, and this was the beginning of, of was the organic, more the, so you're right on the, like the, 
the leading edge of that. And people gamed that system. Um, corporations in particular really gamed that system. Um, and at that point, like local producers were being exploited uh, for their products to market. Um, and so dropping any of the corporate names of the large mega grocery stores that cater to natural or organic foods, but they were already players back then and they were doing some dastardly things uh, that I experienced firsthand uh, working within that industry. Um, uh, definitely got me back into issues of food systems because um, I was already into health uh, and not being able to access, um, but just to maintain yourself uh, outside of uh, having sort of a big brother system of healthcare or sick care, whatever we're going to call that, that is, again, based on profit and large corporations um, that determine whether you get well or if you're just sustainably sick. Um, that initial blurb, and that was probably 2007 or so. Between 2010 and 2018, it, I mean, it, it tenfold. It's like a you know billion dollar industry now, and I mean, work working in it yeah. for five years at Campbell's Nutrition in Des Moines, which is one of the third. It's the third oldest health food store in the nation. I was really proud to work there, even. You know, if there, I mean, there's about that mislabeling and the corruption in the system and about the big box stores. And I'm still, <laughs> I'm always on my soapbox about it. And I'm always willing to go pay more at a smaller store. <laughs> I'm always willing to try to support those, those companies because it matters. Like our purchases matter because that's where we as consumers vote. And even if we, even if we're off the grid, you know, we're still consuming. Maybe that's just one end of the spectrum versus the affluent spectrum that you were discussing yeah. in the suburbs and teaching teaching them how to how to shut up for 15 minutes okay that that's the that's the missing piece that i i didn't forget but i don't know whatever there's a lot going on um yeah suburbanites like not necessarily cater to them but them being the ones who show up um city i was also enrolled in uh just a antiquated language which gets used a lot but so-called oriental medicine i was in an or in oriental medicine program which i didn't necessarily need to be in there just wasn't an apprenticeship program that um signed up to so i figured well might as well just go through the coursework um a lot of visation <laughs> and i'll pay some money and i'll be able to take the boards for like acupuncture specifically because i already had training i just needed to actually take the coursework because they wouldn't accept apprenticeship at the time which Again, all this stuff to break down the relationship between uh, like traditional teacher-student uh, types of roles. Anyway, that's a sidebar. But uh, while I was there, because I was already a, a medical Qigong practitioner and clinician, that is one of the kind of work-study roles that I had working in a stroke rehabilitation clinic that was both integrated with uh, more of the Western allopathic therapy, physical therapy, um, and then merged with uh, acupuncture and medical qigong. And so I was basically doing any number of different things with patients there that, again, had experienced some form of uh, cases sometimes. Um, and so that was a great experience, but also the only people that I worked with were those who could afford it. And 
again, being in a suburb of, of Kansas City, uh, again, it was that same same demographic, um, extremely entitled folks uh, who were getting excellent care. A lot of folks uh, actually told by their um, oncologists that you're never going to get better. Um, you just need to cope with a miserable existence. Or in some cases, it's like you, what you have is terminal and there's no hope for you, which is like a terrible thing to say. And also maybe it's true, but also if you have other options, definitely explore them with the, the client or patient. And so there was issues there that I was seeing within the healthcare system too, that uh, again, pushing me further away from that. Because as much as I still would love working in a clinic, um, revolving door system of both allopathic doctors and the Western medical establishment as being the holders of health and wellness for the individual. Uh, it, it just rubbed me the wrong way enough times over the course of a, of a good year stretch that I also had to find another way at that point. And that was maybe 2010, I think, maybe 2011. Our bodies are meant to heal themselves you know, and, and I think a, a big problem in the allopathic world is this is giving over your your sovereignty to a, a medication or a doctor or to somebody else. You just say, give me a pill and fix mm-hmm. me. And then you're not really engaging in the subtle processes of doing healing work. Um, which is just sure, physical. Sure. You know, there's mental, emotional components you know, things that we're not listening to on a spiritual level that creates tension and issues in our bodies. So I can, I can see where you would get worn down mm-hmm. with that. Yeah. To use, to use well, that I, term that you said, sustainably yeah. sick. I've never <laughs> heard that, never thought of it that way. That's what I hear. Um, but um, but and again, like you're, again, you're resonating on so many levels with me that I haven't thought about this stuff for a while. Um, and that one of the reasons why I caught on to that so quickly, which again, I much quicker again, like many things, um, mom had been benched within, uh, social work and also Western medicine as a result of that mental, mental health, um, decades. Um, so going from still functional asylum types of situations, uh, psychiatric hospitals with terrible inhumane practices um i can't ima- i don't know i can't imagine being able to do the work that my mom has had to endure as well as corrections that have had been made that she didn't necessarily even have the option of making like she was told by whoever was above that this is how we're doing things now um in, in any way shape or form an actual solution to some of the issues in terms of how we work with people who uh, have mental illnesses that are struggling with mental health in different capacities too, and that we're still not seeing today. We're seeing improvements, but it's because it's a top-down uh, approach rather than doing I, it from the bottom up. Um, yeah, I was domestic violence for a short period and was so disgusted with the system that I left it. Mm. And I like I did my exit yeah. interview. I wrote I wrote everybody that I possibly could about how absurd it is to have a bureaucratic set plan that you try to adhere to a human being you know it's not it's not like a curriculum you know when you're traumatized it's not like you're going to want to take classes 
you know, or, or have an exit strategy mm-hmm. or, I mean, they, they need to be listening to the people that are on the ground that are working with the individuals that need help, not trying to administer a blanket method because one size does not fit all with human beings. All the way. I mean, I like, I need allopathic medicine because I, you know, sometimes I get kidney infections and if I don't take antibiotics, that means Lauren dies, right? (laughs) Or I get very sick and and continue to shrink my already scar tissued kidneys. So I, I Reiki that antibiotic and I take all the probiotics after the fact and I do all the oregano oil and, you know, just everything that I, that I know that my body needs to work with that. You know, it's, it's not, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater is what my teacher would say. But I think that the preventative methods Mm -hmm. and the styles that we kind of move through is that if you can keep the body in, in a state of health, then you don't need those other things until you need them. And then they're very beneficial. Yes. When I talk about my own, oh, I don't know, medicine, things that I use, um, I don't want to use aspirin. I'd rather maybe you just use some white willow bark that I pull off of a tree and create myself. But also sometimes I might need ibuprofen or I have a migraine or something that I know that is one thing for sure that'll help me get over that quickly um, or other things. Um, it's not about using those things um, just because I consider myself more of whatever holistic means now, but like a holistic practitioner or someone who tends to want to use more plant medicine, not plant-derived pharmaceuticals, um, involved with that doesn't actually help with the healing process or the ongoing work of kind of figuring things out either. So yeah, no, uh, no health shaming when it comes down to your own personal experiences uh, has really, it still does. And that was, again, something that was fairly recently said to me. I was like, oh, that's a, that's an excellent way of looking at it. Uh, when I have uh, like a vitamin I, I call ibuprofen, mm-hmm. a vitamin I, because uh, sometimes overused by so many people um yeah no shame no shame in that regard absolutely it's like rabbit hole with uh food-based supplements versus synthetics because like you know all of these like case studies are like oh you don't absorb vitamin d and i'm like it's because it's from lanolin and we don't eat lanolin and calcium should not come from limestone it needs to come from you know algae or frustrated about some of like the research studies and people poo-pooing stuff that has like benefited my health in such a major way so it's both and everybody's different use what you need to do no shame in taking vitamin i's once in a while right Um, poor you know because of my recovery jimmy like i had i had a a breast surgery last year um just just a year ago on february 10th touch touch wood Mm -hmm. um, where they removed a tumor that was the size of a racquetball it was fine oh wow but you know i had to let the uh, you know the esthetician (laughs) i do not give me too much like put me in a twilight stage i would rather be awake for the surgery than for you to knock me out and he was he was so respectful Mm -hmm. and he's like i know exactly what i'm gonna do and I was like, just asleep enough through the surgery that I didn't move. And then I got up and I was very awake. So they showed me the the, the tumor inside of a little jar. It was super creepy because it was so big. Whoa. And I was like a little bit off, right? Um, oh. But because of, you know, my <laughs> adherence to my sobriety, I chose not to take any medications after the fact because a lot of them have opiates in them, right? And that, that's my sure. weakness. Yeah. Um, so I... Yep 
I basically an ice cream scoop to the chest, any medication, right? Except for CBD and Aleve. And it, it hurt, it hurt wow. like fuck, but it was not as bad as like, I think, you know, I don't know if it's a high pain tolerance or whatever, but it's like, if you can stay with the pain, my healing process was so much quicker because I wasn't checked out of my body, but it was uncomfortable. Um, mm-hmm. If you need to take medication, please do like, don't, don't suffer. I'm just a little bit nuts. And it sounds like Jimmy is too. So <laughs> Use yeah, well, well, mischief. Oh no, there's not, not music, music yet. yet. Not music yet. In 2013, so we would have had to like met. That. Yeah, yeah, like right when I was just figuring out how to play some things. Well, so. you had me fooled. <laughs> <Ta-da>. <laughs> That's fun. Be a march for climate across the United States. What in you said I want to go camp? outdoors every night for nine months and put myself through hell with like 50 other people I really want to hear your 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 take on all of that experience because it was almost a year of your life and I saw you on the other end of it in New York City when you walked from LA across the country Mm, yeah traveling at that point too like already um oh gosh yeah this is just per month um especially just in texas and back um yeah that was fierce i I don't ever probably will at some point in my life um but doing it multiple times um in a season uh like a great uh being able to slow down um being able to actually see the speed of life and not at the speed of whatever fossil fuel contraption i was being conveyed in um and i think I was wanting to from not not the responsibility of teaching because I never thought of that as a responsibility. I felt a responsibility to to serve different people that I was I was teaching, but the the role itself was almost always secondary to the relationship with the people that I was working with. Um, and so again, when I told them about them, <laughs> uh, come come and see us whenever you want. Uh, and so there was more of a blessing and sort of like, oh, you're leaving us, blah, 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 blah. It's more, you've given us a good foundation either way. And yeah, whatever we can do in the future is great too. I didn't feel as though I was leaving somebody in a, especially when I gave them like plenty of notice. So I was still teaching them at the time. Um, and then, uh, like ongoing inspire, like good foundation practice before, uh, before 2014 hit, um, at that point too, or coordinating initially uh well one was a dear friend who's mine um and then ed who i'd known through gosh probably through chelsea our our mutual friend chelsea um we were able to just kind of figure out some logistics and i eventually was hired on because again i'm very capable of doing things uh and it seemed like a very good blend of skills that I'd been cultivating over a number of years too to kind of go forward with. So again, not not a big lift for me um, to make that decision, if that makes sense. Just sort of way to be able to see the world from more of a frontline, literally on the ground perspective too. Wow, I'm I'm sure that a lot of people would say, "Oh, I wish I could do that." 
but what what makes you different jimmy that you you don't wish it you're like no i'm i'm gonna do this i'm gonna i'm gonna commit to nine months i'm gonna commit to almost a year like how how are you different than other people who feel like that's not not possible I putting myself in somebody else's situation um, as well as I don't want to say desperate any other options because again there are things that I stepped away from to do this but you know because they like you've been you I, you a house with a mortgage that you're kind of battling with now in Ames but home is wherever you are and the people that you're with sure. And I think a lot of people mm-hmm. feel so tied down by their belongings and by their commitments and you've been more adaptable, which I think, you know, you being a Capricorn sun sign, I'd be interested to see Joe's uh, interpretation on your chart, you know, <laughs> like what other, what other <laughs> energies make you, you know, like you have that commitment, but it's also, there's this nomadic freedom that makes you so unique and so wild in a way. I'll have a bit of a adventure, some streak. I don't know that I'm necessarily like an adrenaline uh, jockey, like a lot of folks who do forms of direct action activism are. Um, but I guess I'm also drawn to experimental challenge when it comes down to hmm, maybe some of the larger systems at play. The, again, like the same systems that would tell you, yeah, don't walk across a continent when you could drive it <laughs> or fly it mm-hmm. and just pretty much skip over all of these things in exchange for, for time that is spent probably just sitting <laughs> sitting in an airplane watching a movie or reading a magazine that is trying to sell you things. Um, so yeah, I, I, at that point too, I felt enough of the standard that I kind of knew how things worked and I wanted to see something from an entirely different perspective that I wouldn't have been able to do in another situation, really. Um, so everything that came together was meant to be, for sure. Um, I'm glad that I was a part of it. Uh, I had no way of forecasting how all that would have played out. And I think you also touched on, again, back to the significance of like beloved people and community, however they may come together and be cultivated the aspect of, again, we'll say 50, whatever, <laughs> roughly 50 people um, who basically didn't know each other beforehand coming together in an essentially an intentional community, uh, like a roving village. We actually called it One Earth Village in a very informal capacity, as far as, as, far as I will say. Um, and some of the folks that one, uh, the people who I uh, again, a beloved person from that March experience uh, was has been the only person that's been able to come through and visit me at this house. So I've had one one guest here in almost a year. And that has been uh, my dear friend, Kelsey. I remember Kelsey. Yeah, it's the other end of the journey. And there was a I think that New York sort of lifted everybody's spirits in a way, but you all looked weary and thin and wiry and didn't, didn't know what to do with a roof over your head. 
I mean, I, I was like, here, I've made you all this food. And everyone's like, no, thanks. I'll just eat peanut butter and bread because that's what I'm used to. You know, it was, I mean, I guess from my perspective, I was so worried about the mental fragility that all of you were experiencing because you'd been through collective trauma, whether you want to put it that way or not, like the experience of being shipwrecked and that you were all kind of huddled together. You seemed very assembled. I think that that's just a big part of your your adaptability, your flexibility and way of moving through the world. But that was not true of the group. And I could I could see a lot of pain. I could see a lot of resentments. I could see a lot of joy, like getting to the climate march in New York. Uh, I mean, that was such a magnificent experience, uh, earth shattering in a way for me. I never been in a crowd of that many people all unified with one cause. Sure. Oh, yeah. That was a big, big spectacle. That was, yeah, <laughs> there was a lot. Was a, a whole like bunch. the climax. But I think a lot of the younger ones just wanted to get arrested. Like, I remember that was a big That's, thing. Yeah. Like, we wanted yeah. to get arrested. We're going to go to all these climate climate activities and go cause problems. And I was like, I am not bailing anyone out of jail. <laughs> That's not what I need to no. But there was like 13 of you at some point staying in my loft in Brooklyn. There are a bunch. Well, yeah, the one of the reasons I didn't go through and do the arrestability thing is I was like, well, at least somebody who's staying here <laughs> that is that is being hosted by my friend from Iowa needs to be here, <laughs> period. Like cause the other folks didn't really think about it. I'm like, that doesn't surprise me. It's cool. I've been with y'all for like seven months. Yeah. <laughs> I know what you're going to do. But also in good conscience, I can't, I can't just get arrested with you. It doesn't make any, you know. Somebody's no. got to have I'm, the I'm key. I'm going to be the, yeah. Somebody's right. Slightly, the slightly older adult. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, that was, yeah, that was an issue. It's like, I, getting arrested, it sucks. Yeah. Okay. But also with something this high profile, the chances of somebody in this very public climate march get yeah it's it's the risk was super duper low especially because again most of the folks of the march again were were white folks too right. so there's always a privilege uh dynamic that goes along with that too so there's even less of a concern that way yeah y'all were very tan <laughs> by the time i saw you Leather, what, leathery weathered, yes. <laughs> um, i i want to ask you about the after effect of that because i feel like it was the march that no one knew about you know, I don't like, I, I feel like it never really got the tread that it deserved, you know, and, and maybe because only 50 people joined or some people would come march through the towns, but how does it feel to be a part of something that was so historic that really didn't get a lot of press? Uh, may, mainly because there was a lot that why it may not have received that publicity and press, um, but also have the bigger struggle that came along with uh, that community was just figuring out what what is our message? Do we have a unified message? What is the what is the mission of the climate of this climate march that we're on? And that was an ongoing question debate, many 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 hours of meetings that really came to nothing more than uh, a bunch of sentences 
being restructured on on a poster board. <laughs> so many sessions of this being like near DC at the end of it. Uh, so again, there, again, there's because we didn't have a unified message, which again, whether we should have or not, I don't, I don't care. But for the media to latch onto something that doesn't have a well, sorry, for the media to latch on to something that is super duper amorphous and conflicted with its own messaging. I, I, I can't blame the media for not having something more. Uh, we didn't really have a, a good delivery model. We had an excellent uh, concept of delivery, which again, spectacle walking across a continent. That's cool. That's, that's something that not a lot of people do for climate stuff. Um, and I'd probably again. Do you think that you impacted the spectacle of it? I mean, you, there were, you had support teams and there were banners and t-shirts and I mean, there was, there was certainly a visual. I mean, it would have been more yeah. impressive if it had been 500, right? But. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, it's really, again, even to this day, I don't, I can't gauge the impact. There's plenty of speculation that could go on, but uh, I don't, I just think about how, how, Thinly, we were stretched like over over the entire March. Mm -hmm. um, I was super stressed out most of the time. Um, a lot of additional responsibilities that were that I had to take. I'll just say that I had to take up opportunities that I cared about. Right. And smaller towns that we went through because we were able to get more one-on-one -on -one time often than like if we're in a big city with a lot of people and the big NGOs. Uh, uh, nonprofits and such uh, doing their thing. Um, the trade-off there is making the more in-depth conversations and interactions with people that we meet. And so at least for me, the smaller scale stuff, which again is where I operate more, well, where I have operated more since then, um, would be smaller groups of people um, sharing, doing popular education, creating skills, or as opposed to Here's a mass mobilization of 1,000 people walking across a cornfield where <laughs> you're only going to get so much one-on-one -on -one interaction with the people you meet. Chances are they may be running away from you if you come with that many people. That's a lot of people. So, yeah, yeah, that would be, that would be a lot. Um, and again, I've done that in the past uh, across across the continent, but um, this just was not the time for it, clearly. You think that it would yeah. be after, you know, hurricane evolution, what, it, what have you, um, do it being done in more of a, an organic cell. Oh, I can't. Katrina. Katrina and it hints about it and that you'd actually do it again. Um, and it sounds like you had a lot of big takeaways about the way that you invest in groups and you probably get put into leadership opportunities quite frequently because of your skill set and your I don't want to call you logical, Jimmy. That's really unfair, but you just, you, you work well with systems. That's why you do what you do. I just, yeah, try and discern what I can. Person of limited capacity, uh, like everyone else. Um, but no, the, I, anything understanding, like you were saying, the structure and the system, but also who is in charge or who is taking charge and why are we following the person in charge? If we need to be steering this vessel that we're all collectively in, this director person, this one person wants to go in the wrong direction. 
like just little little questions like that. How are we supposed to correct the course that we're on <laughs> when leadership is dead set on maintaining this? So when the system is geared for destruction, uh, how, how do we change that leadership? How do we actually take the leadership? How do we communitize? How do we, again, I don't like using the term horizontalize because it kind of loses meaning at a certain point, but how do we actually empower ourselves to be able to take care of one another on a much larger larger level and larger scale um yeah it's a circle you know sure yeah, easier said than done as clearly <laughs> clearly illustrated from the march yes. um, i mean our, our culture you know because of military culture and leadership positions we i think americans are pretty um we like a decision to be made and then we'll change our minds if that's what needs to happen. Right. Like, but somebody's got to yep. call the shot. Somebody's got to make the decision rather than us being like another society, like let's say Sweden or, you know, another, another culture where everybody talks about everything and like comes to a group consensus and everyone's on the same page. That's not really how Americans move. Sure. It, make, it makes sense. Um, did so that you, you know, we're, we're on to the next thing or what did you do after the March and what happened between then and the pipeline and. Oh yeah. Um, repressed energy and intention from a lot of people that were pretty much on the March the whole time that they were not allowed to express themselves in ways that were deemed politically relevant or viable. Um, due to the March's situation. So at a certain point, we decided to do what was necessary um, in terms of taking action, uh, doing directly arrestable uh, protests as well. Um, all things that were designed to disrupt, interrupt, um, stop business as usual, pretty, probably around uh, oh, fossil fuel infrastructure, decision makers, uh, governments, municipalities that were supporting or at least dragging their feet or in direct opposition to um, transitioning away from, from fossil fuel or in that way. Um, and so, yeah, uh, it was a pretty full transition, mainly because most of us had been denied that right. <laughs> I consider it a right, at least right now, uh, to, to actually protest and yell. Um, as far back as back as like Colorado in terms of our, our walk. Um, so yeah, that's a good, yeah, a good four months or so of, <laughs> of uh, ne like a needed expression. And so going through different function or at least frontline community based groups that were fighting fossil fuel infrastructure in the Northeast and mid Atlantic, um, yeah, multiple inside uh, one case of being on probation for three years, which wasn't great, and uh, some jail time as well. We're all part of that. Uh, again, no regrets, um, especially when you're working with a community and you're not simply popping in, deciding, I'm going to go fight something in your town, and I don't really need to check in with any locals who are actually directly affected by the impacts of this uh, fossil fuel project or pipeline or uh, net, uh, fracked gas. Uh, compressor stations that go into that um and yeah from there i would figure out different people to both to inquire about the situation uh, it's a publicized uh pipeline project 
uh, similar to things like the Keystone XL pipeline um, or uh, the Dakota Access pipeline, which on the march, uh, when we were in Iowa, I was able to host a public town hall. Um, I believe it was in Newton, Iowa. People thinking about what they were just, they were just calling it the, the Bakken pipeline at the time, which why they did that, I don't know. It must have been a specific Iowa NGO thing, but they didn't call it the Dakota Access Pipeline for whatever reason. Um, but that was the first time that very much aware of this project that was that would be coming through uh, in the near term future that people would start fighting. And we definitely put up a fight both uh, in in so-called North Dakota as well as in Iowa. I tell tell me about that and what it's like to be a, I mean a protester and I'm more curious about direct action and your feelings about that versus just um, marches and organized protests. Hmm, so, uh, and then I'm gonna go fuck some shit up because somebody <laughs> has to, you know, like what took you over that? What took oh. you over that line? You know, because I I. I, I think as someone who who feels like I'm socially involved, often it's it's working within the system the way that I can. Yeah. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Tell me things. <laughs> uh, for me, uh, having had to operate within a system like many many different systems, like we are even right now, knowing that operating within the system is exactly what the system needs to perpetuate itself. And then protesting, just simply speaking out against the system or writing letters against the system or petitioning against the system. Sometimes those things work, but many times the system doesn't have any reason to acknowledge those, those protests or those efforts. So when it comes down to um, a law, which your intention, unless it's specifically you're breaking a law that <laughs> that is unethical, immoral, any of these things, yes, by all means, that's that's a good reason. That is actually what civil disobedience is. Um, but oftentimes civil disobedience gets thrown in there uh, now when you may actually uh, uh, law for trespassing, which you're, you're not specifically going out to break a law for trespassing. You may be going there to stop construction uh, of a pipeline. So you have to actually go on to private property or land that is being uh, under the control of sort of uh, oil and gas company. And so therefore it's trespassing, but ultimately that's, you're there to stop a pipeline, <laughs> uh, but you're just figuring out how to use our kind of whack job of a, of a system of laws and so-called order um, to either buy time uh, get attention. Any number of different reasons why people would engage in different forms of direct action, civil disobedience, but most of the time it's to to stop something shitty that's happening, even for a moment. Uh, and in theory, most people want to bring attention, to, uh, greater attention to that in a public space, not just simply to stop it. But sometimes when it comes down to, if I'm just saying direct action, if in an everyday situation, intervening, if somebody may be coming to harm and you feel that you can prevent that harm from happening, intervening, doing something where you're actually physically putting yourself in between. Um, and so it doesn't have to be protest necessarily something that is direct action. And um, at a certain point, 
something that was a necessary next step in resistance, uh, in this case to the fossil fuel empire, uh, climate collapse, climate chaos, which unfortunately we're already very much in, um, and we can still do quite a bit to take care of one another. Uh, yes. Within our lifetime, we've seen such. Yeah. So much. It's eminent. Um, what do you, you know, just to the people who are listening out there, any suggestions of how they can get involved or books that you, I'm just trying to think of how, like, I'm so inspired by the work that you've done, even if I don't understand it. Right. Like I, like I can't imagine the situations, the people, the organization that it takes to get you from, you know, aims to marching to, you know, the Dakotas and, and, um, yeah, I, just, I would love any like advice that you had to offer for anyone out there is listening. Hmm. How do they get involved? Okay. <laughs> Some different D, whatever you consider your community, of course. Um, I guess if, if uh, I guess exposure to the type of work that I'm doing, um, I would recommend probably community. Um, also kind of digging into maybe your own what resonates for you in terms of issues that you care about as well. Um, I kind of think about this in a, in a little way too. Um, so you're going to try and get, <laughs> again, if you go out uh, in the winter, you want to be able to dress uh, accordingly, probably in layers, probably warmly, depending on who you are. I'm not going to tell you how to dress. Uh, but in terms of your ability to to persist and exist outside in very cold weather in the winter, um, it's good to know why you're going out. Uh, <laughs> you just want to hang out outside in the winter for no particular reason. So instead of going out in that blizzard, which is our world right now, it seems, um, find out what is resonating with you, what speaks to your heart, what issues are profound, um, what injustice is actually breaking your heart to know that it's going on and maybe starting more locally if you know um, that that is something that is happening in your community. And also if you're going on on a national level, there's no reason to not um, do a little bit of research and to see how to uh, assist. Some places, uh, some organizations will often call for either volunteers or people to show up um, in person. Uh, other groups, which again, I'm generally going to try and support smaller organizations as opposed to large uh, national nonprofits um, in particular, because I know how um, especially local smaller organizations can better serve their than a large national organization, which may not have any actual real ties to the community that they're supposedly serving. Plus, uh, it sounds like you're describing the government uh, or some organizations like the Red Cross of other uh, anyway other disaster situations. <clears throat> anyway, that's another conversation for another day. First-hand experiences, folks. Um, donate to uh, local organizations if you can, or in particular, if you can create relationships with people that are working on these issues directly, um, they can better direct you in terms of how to donate uh, and really make sure that your dollar is having an impact um, in the event that you may not be able to contribute uh, by having me there. Um, on the front lines too. Um, I guess if there's specific questions too. 
can or and we can brainstorm as well just because there's so many issues out there it's easy to get overwhelmed but generally start where you're called and from there you can actually meet enough people along the way uh to kind of grow your i don't know exploration decolonization all of these words can have meaning but it really depends on uh what you'd like to make out of them in this in this fascinating but somewhat brief life we have so yeah make the most of it meet your people find your people start where you're called yeah i think that's um yeah because when you're i don't know when you're 18 or 20 and you're just opening yourselves up to the bigger world and i think that younger and younger i mean maybe in our generation because like the internet wasn't really available to us when we were in high school mm-hmm. yeah I'm, I'm i'm dating us a bit right but uh you know, we didn't, we didn't have Instagram to kind of call to action on things. Like, uh, I mean, I, I started, um, volunteering at like creative visions and I mean, you go, you go where, you know, that there are people helping people. Yep. Um, and I think that that's still true. Um, and I think that you're absolutely right about the local, you know, getting involved. And we know that with disaster relief and the power of mutual aid that we're seeing through, through Instagram, through social media, um, there are benefits to social media people for sure, you know, cause there's, there's, um, power in numbers, you know, where there are people, there are power, as it said. Um, so I, I like, I like those suggestions that really, you know, lit a fire for you, Jimmy. Um, I read and I have read at the, at this moment right now, the ones that are coming up for me, just literally emergent that. Are, would hopefully be good primers. I, I'm hoping they wouldn't be a little bit uh, too jargony. Um, but again, I'm <laughs> I'm I'm in it to a point where I can't tell what jargon is anymore. Uh, I'll just research words that I don't understand and try and figure them out sometimes. Um, but uh, the author, an amazing Adrian Marie Brown, has an awesome book, which is a culmination of many years of experience uh, in terms of organizing, being a part of activism and campaigns of many sorts. Uh, It's a book called Emergent Strategy. Um, And there's also another book uh, by Adrienne Marie Marie Brown called uh, Pleasure Activism as well. So both of those I'd recommend looking into uh, for a slightly different take than going directly into, here's a, a book about how people need to be as activists or this is how you organize a union or definitely start wherever you want to. But at least those two are the ones that are popping for me because they feel accessible. They, for me, they read in a way that is really personable. Um, and again, I, I appreciate uh, Adrian is a big nerd uh, as well. And you should also look into uh, some of the podcasts that she is a part of and Response, I'll say responsible slash co-responsible for, which have been medicines for me over the course of the last few years, as well as this pandemic season, pandemic seasons at this point. So um, mm-hmm. again, this feels like I'm just really pushing that uh, author uh, more than author. No, I, I mean, but they, they touched your heart. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. And still like, yeah, still something that I would recommend for, for most people. Um, Yes. And the things that make your heart, your heartbeat, you know, <laughs> make, that make you feel good in this world. 
Well, no thank problem. you so much yeah. for making time to chat with me. That's it's been. And that was Jimmy Betts sharing his voice, his story, his journey, and I could not be so grateful. Um, There was some audio garble during the recording, um, so about half an hour of our conversation got cut out, which it's probably for the best. I mean, two hours of a conversation between us (laughs) is a lot, Uh, but but there is so much to take in there, uh, the, the journey, the experience, the strength, the intellect, all of the things. Such a beautiful, beautiful soul. So hopefully you gathered something from that experience listening to Jimmy. This episode was brought to you by K-Apothecary. They're in Mount Vernon, Iowa, and online, of course. So check out K, uh, book a numerology reading with Andrea Gorsh, the owner. Uh, check out their, their stuff, their herbal mixes, the linen spray, all the goods, all the beautiful, shiny, amazing, earthy, luscious objects that come from their stores. Uh, again, Mount Vernon, Iowa, K Apothecary. Check it out online. This is Lauren K. Hickman. You can find me on Instagram at Lauren K. Hickman or check me out online, laurenkhickman.com or energyinterpreter.com. I am both of those things. Um, doing my first pop up on May 18th at Freight 38 here in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. This is a big breakthrough moment. Gonna make some community, people. So if you are in the Milwaukee area, you can look that up. Uh, I think it's called Terrestrial Terrarium, something like that. Uh, It's going to be on May 18th, which is a Tuesday from 5 to 8 at Freight 38. You can find me uh, to book a virtual appointment. Uh, I'll also be seeing people live and in person here in Milwaukee soon enough. Uh, My dates for Des Moines are set, I think, for July 17th and 18th at Kin. And I'll be seeing clients the following weekend uh, for in-person energy work in the Des Moines area. So mark your calendars for mid and July. Um, Thank you. Thank you for joining me for this expression of my heart. Uh, It means a lot to me to make meaning in this big, crazy world doing this virtual work. So I appreciate you and hope that you will find a way to stay inspired in this beautiful season of Taurus.